Welcome to your new favorite bookish podcast, Fully Booked and Caffeinated. I'm Kelsey. And I'm Heather. And today we will be discussing We Have Always Lived in the Castle by Shirley Jackson. As usual, let's talk about our fuel for this discussion. Heather, are you drinking caffeine this evening? Uh, No, but I will tell you about the two coffee drinks that I had today, this morning. (laughs) I not only went to Dunkin', I also went to Starbucks. (laughs) Amazing. I got my blueberry cobbler at Dunkin', of course, and then... Mm -hmm. Predictably at Starbucks, I got white chocolate mocha. <laughs> I am oh very excited. Gosh. I can't wait for their holiday drinks. A couple more weeks. They come out like mm-hmm. around Thanksgiving. But now I'm just drinking some flavored water because I drank so yeah, much I'm... coffee that now I need to hydrate myself. <laughs> yeah, you do. I'm definitely excited for their holiday flavors and just for like a good old chai. Like I can't drink a delicious chai latte until it's chilly outside. So I'm excited for that. I um, have been having quite the evening. So I just made myself a coffee at 7.30 p.m. Um, I got a little vanilla Nespresso coffee pod, and I used some of Eric's coffee creamer. He got the Grinch frosted sugar cookie Ooh, coffee creamer. How is that? It's really good. It's very, very sweet because it's the uh, International Delight yeah. brand. Yeah. But it's really good. The sugar cookie Starbucks drink is my new favorite one. So I oh, should that I should get good. that creamer because I would love it because I love the sugar cookie latte at a Starbucks. It was always the caramel brulee latte that I went for, but then like they came out with the sugar cookie and now that's my favorite one. <laughs> so delicious. Anyway, cheers. Cheers. <laughs> All right. So let's talk a little bit about Shirley Jackson. She composed six novels two memoirs, and more than 200 short stories in her 20-year-long career. She's best known for her dystopian short story, The Lottery, which came out in 1948. It is written with the suggestion that there's this deeply unsettling underside to small-town America. It was published in The New Yorker, and it received the biggest reaction that any story published in the New Yorker ever had, like up until that time, they got hundreds and hundreds of letters pouring in like reactions to the story, some good, some bad, but it was just, that's when people really started to know her name because it got such a big reaction. But other than that, she's very private. She didn't like being interviewed. She didn't promote her own work. Her husband, Stanley, said she believed that her books would speak for her clearly enough over the years. And he was right, because she's really well known well past her time. She's the author of Haunting of Hill House, which was also super successful when it first came out. And there's the Netflix adaptation that's loosely based on that book, which was so popular. In one of the rare occasions that Jackson did write about her work, she wrote, I very much dislike writing about myself or my work, and when pressed for autobiographical material, can only give a bare chronological outline which contains, naturally, no pertinent facts. I was married in 1940 to Stanley Hyman, critic and numismatist, which is a specialist in coins. I looked it up. Interesting. I thought it was a made-up word, but anyway. (laughs) Uh, And we live in Vermont in a quiet, rural community with fine scenery and comfortably far away from city life. Our major exports are books and children, both of which we produce in abundance. (laughs) The children are Lawrence, Joanne, Sarah, and Barry. My books include three novels and a collection of short stories. Life Among the Savages is a disrespectful memoir of my children. 
Wow, I she's love a savage. Her. <laughs> yeah, she's a savage. So even by reading that, you could tell she's like very sassy mm-hmm. and sarcastic. And I saw that in a lot of articles that she was known for her wit. But she actually died in 1965 of heart failure in her sleep at her home in Vermont at the age of 48. Oh, that's so young. So young. That's so young. Even for the 60s. Like, we're not talking like 1901. That's, yeah, that's unfortunate. And there's also a film made about her titled Shirley, which starred Elizabeth Moss, which I had never heard of until I started looking into her. And it kind of portrays her unraveling. Apparently, she struggled with her mental health a lot. And that's evidenced in a lot of her characters. Like, people say that her different characters are like, mirror different aspects of her personality so there's a lot of those things that come out even in this story which we will talk about so today's book we have always lived in the castle is a gothic mystery first published in september 1962 slightly before our time now it is classified as horror but of course it's not what we typically think of as horror it plays off of the implications of scary things happening and the sense of unease or dread that kind of flows through the whole book. So there's a few different summaries since this has been republished so many times. So I'm going with the most vague. (laughs) Taking readers deep into a labyrinth of dark neuroses, We Have Always Lived in the Castle is a deliciously unsettling novel about a perverse, isolated, and possibly murderous family and the struggle that ensues when a cousin arrives at their estate. There you go. Is it vague enough? So vague. I didn't want to give the whole plot away because it's a pretty simple plot. So when I was looking into this story, everyone raves about the opening paragraph. Like it says it's one of the best of all time, how it pulls you in from the very start. And I was like, okay, I need to go back and reread the first paragraph because I don't remember it off the top of my head, but let's see what they're talking about. So now I'm going to read it for you. Mm Mm-hmm. My name is Mary Catherine Blackwood. I am 18 years old and I live with my sister Constance. I have often thought that with any luck at all, I could have been born a werewolf because the two middle fingers on both my hands are the same length, but I have had to be content with what I had. I dislike washing myself and dogs and noise. I like my sister Constance and Richard Plantagenet and Amanita Phalloids, the death cut mushroom. Everyone else in my family is dead. What do you think of this opener? <laughs> now that you like say that, like, I totally forgot about. I actually don't even like remember. I remember like the first two lines, like her saying, "I'm Mary Catherine Blackwood, and I live with Mister Constance." Mm-hmm. Totally oversaw the werewolf middle finger thing. Yeah, yeah, me too. It's very quirky. Because werewolves, werewolves never come back ever. No, no. <laughs> I think it's a really good setup because it immediately puts into your head that Mary is odd. Mm-hmm possibly an unreliable narrator and that the writing will be pretty straightforward because it's in her first person narrative Mm -hmm. all right so let's get into a quick summary of the plot it's not a very complicated one and then we'll dive into the symbolism because there's a lot of that and then we'll discuss the movie adaptation so as mary Catherine told us she's 18 She lives in the Blackwood house with her older sister, Constance, who's 28, and their sick Uncle Julian. The three of them are the only ones remaining out of the family due to a murder plot where the entire family was poisoned. Constance was blamed for the murders because she did all the cooking, but was ultimately acquitted in court. Uncle Julian was present and was poisoned, but he survived. Mm -hmm. 
So because of Julian's sickness and Const- Constance's, oh, that's a hard one. Because the guilt Constance has, there you, there go. you go, make it make it passive. Um, it's morphed into agoraphobia, mm-hmm. so she's never able to leave the house grounds, and Julian doesn't leave because he's sick. So Julian is writing a book about the murders, but he doesn't know all the details, so he just intends to make up what he doesn't know, mm-hmm. which I love. Yeah, I mean, it's so good. And it's all he talks about, nonstop. All he talks about is his book. He's like, should I start chapter 44 today? And then he'll just randomly look at Constance and be like, it did happen, right? And she has to be like, yes, Uncle Julian, it happened. So one of my favorite parts is when two of the townspeople come to tea at the Blackwood house and Julian explains the backstory of the poisoning. So here we go. Mrs. Wright says, first, she, referring to Constance, bought the arsenic. To kill rats, Constance said to the teapot and then turned and smiled at me. To kill rats, Uncle Julian said. Mrs. Wright again. She cooked the dinner. She set the table. It was Constance who saw them dying around her like flies, I do beg your pardon, and never called the doctor until it was too late. She washed the sugar bowl. There was a spider in it, Constance said. Mrs. Wright. She told the police those people deserve to die. Julian answers. She was excited, madam. Perhaps the remark was misconstrued. My niece is not hard-hearted. Besides, she thought at the time that I was among them, and although I deserve to die, we all do, do we not? I hardly think that my niece is the one to point it out. And then Mrs. Wright says, she told the police it was all her fault. Now there, Uncle Julian said, I think she has made a mistake. It was certainly true that she thought at first that her cooking had caused all this, but in taking full blame, I think that she was overeager. I would have advised her against any such attitude had I been consulted. It smacks of self-pity. But the great, the unanswered question is why. I love this because it's the only explanation we get of what actually happened that day of the poisoning. Like we never get an actual facts. This is what happened. Mm -hmm. And it's in a conversation between Julian, who, like we said, doesn't fully remember, and a townsperson who's going solely off the rumors. Yeah. So you don't know if it's 100% the truth. No, I I agree. that, That aspect of like, wait, do we even believe this? The writing style, too, is very much reminds me of Agatha Christie as well, mm-hmm. because it's was not that it's like old timey, but just the way that the writing style was. And it's it's almost like kind of got like that satire feel to it because it's like they're it's such a depressing conversation. But Mrs. Wright is like chomping at the bit to get oh, yeah. all the details and Julian and Constance the way that they're describing everything it's not even there's no depressive feel to it at all it's like mm-hmm. an upbeat mm-hmm. conversation <laughs> and meanwhile mary is like taunting mrs right mm-hmm. like saying oh why didn't you eat your rum cake or whatever she made like why are, are you afraid yeah. to eat something that my sister made but she doesn't say it out loud she just says like oh you haven't even touched your tea and like she's clearly taunting her Mm -hmm. so i agree it does have this kind of like sarcastic witty feel even coming from mary's point of view yeah so mary Catherine goes to the village two days per week to get groceries because she's the only one who can leave the house and we see the dynamic between the townspeople and the blackwoods some are terrified of her 
They are quiet as soon as she walks in the room. They won't even look her in the eye. Some of them taunt her, especially the men and the young boys. And Mary Catherine is terrified, but also angry the whole time, every time. She says, I wish you were all dead, I thought, and longed to say it out loud. Constance said, never let them see that you care. And if you pay any attention, they'll only get worse. And probably it was true. But I wish they were dead. I was never sorry when I had thoughts like this. I only wished they would come true. So all through the story, Mary Catherine has these very dark thoughts about wishing people were dead. Yeah, she's very, she's very dark. She is. Just like she, all the you, time. You could just, you could just tell immediately that the only person she likes on the planet is Constance and the cat. Jonas. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> she even has these little conversations like, I should be nicer to Uncle Julian. Mm-hmm. I should make a better effort. So then we get the big plot point. Cousin Charles shows up out of the blue and Constance immediately lets him in and invites him to visit as long as he wants, which is interesting because she's terrified when the townspeople come anywhere near the house. But because he's family She accepts him right away, and I think it shows us that while Mary is completely happy with just the three of them, well, just the two of them plus Uncle Julian, maybe Constance is a little bit lonelier than she lets on, Mm -hmm. and maybe she's not as happy with this little existence as Mary is. Yeah, I can see that too, because you, when, especially like in the beginning of the book where she's explains to, you know, Mary Catherine, she's like, oh, I walked a little bit further on the property today. She's like, maybe next time you go shopping, I'll go with you. So it's like, you can kind of get the vibe that she's almost ready to, to go back out into the world. Yeah, like that she wishes she could. And it's more society and the environment stopping her and not necessarily her. Mm -hmm. So Charles, he clearly wants to change the dynamic of the house. He comes in and just immediately starts running shit. He discourages Julian from talking about his book and makes comments about how he can't feed himself and how he's such a disgrace and all this stuff and how he shouldn't be talking about the murders because it makes Constance sad and blah, 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 blah. And Julian is like, Charles, you talk too fucking much. Can you shut your yap hole? Which I loved. Yeah. Um, he tells Constance not to wait on Julian so much or to do everything everyone asks of her. And he provokes Mary because she clearly doesn't like him. Yeah. He starts wearing their father's clothes, jewelry, scarves, and complaining about how they waste money by keeping valuable things in the house. So Charles starts to make Constance doubt their little life that they live. She starts making little comments like Julian should be in a hospital where people can take care of him and Mary should be a normal girl not wandering through the woods all day. And he also makes a lot of comments about the massive amount of money that the girls keep locked in a safe in the house. Yeah. So we as the audience are able to see what his true intentions are. But because the girls are somewhat sheltered and naive they don't see his obsession with the money no absolutely not and they're just like what what is the big deal like we just have money it's just it's like second nature to them it's not like it's weird at all yeah exactly because they've always the blackwoods have always had a fortune Mm -hmm. so constance and charles are preparing to have a talk with mary and julian and it's heavily implied that they plan to marry and leave the house they're cousins. Yeah. The 
<laughs> I was not the a cousins. She's not a fan of like this, and it's obviously Charles taking advantage of Constance because he's greedy and just wants the money. But it's like weird because they're related. And yeah, <laughs> it's icky. Don't yeah. love it. Don't love it. And also, hardcore. it's just the way that she's so easily influenced. Oh yeah, is just so obvious that he's so obvious that he's taking advantage of her, and that he could literally tell her anything. And she'll believe it mm-hmm. because she doesn't know any better. Yeah, she like completely changes once he comes to the mm-hmm. house. Like, and she's blaming herself for everything that happened, blaming herself that that she let this go on for so long. Like Julian not being in a hospital, Mary Catherine being her weird little self. She mm-hmm. she really blames herself for all that. Yeah, definitely. So Mary sees Charles kind of for what he is, but she sees him, she senses him taking over. And so she starts a fire in the house by knocking his lit pipe into the wastebasket. And this is where things become truly unhinged. The firemen from the town come and they're putting the fire out and the villagers are all there. First of all, let's just remember to a time back before there was TV. And if there was a fire, you had to go and watch it because there was nothing else to do. So people are screaming for them to just let the fire burn because they want the Blackwoods to burn. They want everyone in the house to burn. They said this house should have burned down years ago. And the firemen are like, it's a fire. We have to put it out. We're firemen? Duh. It's our job. But then after they put the fire out and do their jobs, they're like, oh, wait, we're also part of this angry mob. So the chief throws a rock through the window and people of the village start ransacking the house, breaking everything, destroying everything, breaking the windows, throwing furniture out the windows, Mm -hmm. screaming that the house should be destroyed along with everyone who lives in it. Sorry. What? It was dark. It is mob mentality. Like, it's scary. And Mary and Constance obviously go and hide. And they're chanting the little rhyme, which has been going. It's been going on throughout the book. Like, when uh, Mary goes to town, they'll kind of chase her down the street and chant it. But it's, Mary Cat said, Connie, would you like a cup of tea? Oh, no, said Mary Cat. You'll poison me. Mary Cat said, Connie, would you like to go to sleep? Down in the boneyard, 10 feet deep. I love a creepy little rhyme. I think I could have done a little better with this one, but I love a creepy little rhyme. So while the fire is going on and the mob is taking over, Uncle Julian dies seemingly of a heart attack. He already was in really bad health and he went back to get his papers, his notes for Mm -hmm. his book. So he died during all the commotion. So once everyone clears out and the house is half burned down, completely ransacked, the girls just clean the kitchen and the front hall, and they decide that this is their new life. They board up the windows. They never speak to anyone from the village. But after a while, the villagers feel guilty for literally destroying these people's house. And every day they start bringing baked goods and food and leaving it at the doorstep in apology for the things they ruined during the fire mob. My favorite is when the one guy, he's like, um, I brought a chicken. I'm sorry I broke one of your chairs. Yeah. I'm like, what? <laughs> so after the angry mob, Mary says to Constance, I'm going to put death in all their food and watch them die. Constance stirred and the leaves rustled. The way you did before, she asked. It had never been spoken of between us, not once in six years. Yes, I said after a minute, the way I did before. There's the mystery. All along, it's been 
alluded to that Mary isn't supposed to help cook. She can't touch knives. She can't touch anything in the kitchen. She can't go in Julian's room. She won't eat in front of others. And like we said, she has these constant murderous thoughts. And we find out that she is the one who poisoned and killed her whole family. Yes. Did you see that coming? Kind of, I think. Just because it was obviously not Constance. Yeah. And this little weird girl running around in the book, um, I I assume she had something to do with it. And the fact that she wasn't Mm -hmm. there at dinner when everyone got poisoned. Yeah, that's why it's like the part where they're talking about how it was arsenic and the sugar. If they had left that part out and kind of left it to your imagination of... Because there's other parts where they say that, you know, Constance is always cooking and there are things in the garden that could kill people, things that are poisonous, like mushrooms and stuff like that. It's like it really could have been an accident. Yeah. So you know that Mary's kind of weird and she has these dark thoughts, but you don't necessarily know that even if it was her, if it was fully on purpose Mm -hmm. or if she was meaning to kill her family or just hurt them. You know what I mean? So that's basically the whole book. That's the whole plot. Pretty straightforward. But once you start digging into it, there's so much symbolism and deeper meaning behind everything that the author writes. So first, Mary's youthfulness. You cannot convince me that she is 18 years old. Oh, no, absolutely not. And if she is 18, she has, she's kind of like stunted. Yes. It's kind of like she stopped aging Mm -hmm. when the tragedy happened. Yeah. But she also, since then, so she was 12 at that time, she's had no exposure to other people her age besides going to the village and having them chase her down the street and taunt her. And Constance also treats her much younger. Yeah, like a child. And then we also have Mary's superstitions and her sense of impending doom. So Mary likes to do little rituals in order to to protect their little family and their house. She buries things. She nails a book to a tree. And then there's little signs that start to show that her rituals aren't working. So when Charles arrives, her book is no longer nailed to the tree. And she knows something is off about him and she wants things to go back to normal. So she's trying to figure out stronger rituals that might drive him away and keep him away. And basically, she just keeps convincing herself that if she can come up with the right protection that he'll leave and everything will go back to normal. There's also Mary's freedom, which comes up because when Charles comes, he says, you know, you shouldn't let Mary Catherine run around like that. And she's a girl. She should be brushing her hair and Mm -hmm. washing herself for dinner and blah, blah, blah. But Constance will not scold or discipline Mary. The last time that Mary was punished is the night that she poisoned her family because she was sent to her bed without dinner. So that's why she wasn't at the dinner table. And she purposely spared Constance. So I kind of wondered, is it just because of this close relationship that they have? Or is Constance in some ways scared of Mary? Uh, It could go either way. I think I think I think you can get the vibes from from both situations scenarios. Because I think like, I think she definitely is she definitely loves and cares for Mary a lot. Otherwise, I would assume she's not going to live there <laughs> anymore. Yeah, yeah. And no, but I do think she kind of, I, I don't know, because also Mary is so protect, like protective of Constance. Mm-hmm. Like she's that there's kind of like a role reversal 
with that, where it feels like Mary's taking care of Constance more than Constance is taking care of Mary, because she's very much worried about her. Like Mm -hmm. when when uh, Mrs. Clark shows up with Mrs. Wright, she wasn't supposed to bring anybody. And she runs to tell Constance, she's like, are you afraid? You know, like, do you want me to do you want me to get rid of them? Like, she's very Mm -hmm. much overprotective of Constance. She's the only reason that they're still surviving. She's going to the village, mm-hmm. even though it's hard for her. I don't think that Constance is like outright scared of Mary, but I think there's always that underlying mm-hmm. just like if she does discipline her or punish her, that Mary could lash out. Retaliate, yeah, and, and yeah, hurt her. So when we talked about the night of the murders, she was sent to bed without dinner. But when she sits in her little creek cave and she's imagining her family praising her and calling her the best child and their favorite and promising to never punish her, it's definitely indicative of the life she wishes she had. Mm -hmm. But once again, it shows her immaturity. Like this, an 18-year-old girl. Yeah, no, I, you really don't believe I like don't even feel like she's 18. Like you're right. Like as I'm as I think back on when I on when I read it, I didn't really imagine her as like this mature young adult. It was more like immaturity and mm-hmm. just not fully there. Yeah. Just even in the simple things of like Constance may have my lunch now and Constance will make her like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and then she runs through the woods and goes and eats it in her little cave that she made. And has conversations with her cat. <laughs> yes. The cat is a main character. Yeah, the cat talks to her, apparently. We don't we don't ever know yes. what the cat is saying, but the cat talks to her. Uh-huh. And the cat is 100% a part of the superstitions and all of that. Mm-hmm. So there's also a lot of complex relationship dynamics. There's the relationship between the villagers and the Blackwoods, which we see... I mean, obviously in the angry mob, but even before that, the way they act towards Mary when she goes to the town. So they hated the Blackwoods before the murders because of their wealth and because the Blackwoods kind of were kind of haughty and like acted like they were better than everyone else. They had all this land and they built this big fence around it so that people couldn't use their land as a shortcut to get to the Mm -hmm. other side of town. That was very dramatic. But then they hate them even more after the murders because they hate that Constance got away with murder with no consequences because obviously everyone thinks that Constance is guilty. Yeah. Then we have the relationship between Constance and Uncle Julian. So Constance takes care of him and encourages his ramblings about the poisoning, even though it probably isn't easy for her to relive that day after day after day her entire family dying i agree with that like she's very much when she's talking to uncle julian when he asks her questions like did your father have a cigar in the morning i don't know and she's very much quick to say yes and there's no disdain or or annoyance in her it doesn't seem like there's any disdain or annoyance patient yeah and she's like yes like you know and he did and like she's very much willing to relive that day over and over again for her uncle Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah her her patience is insane and also just the fact that she focuses so much on his health Mm -hmm. and his well-being while she's kind of losing herself well not kind of she is losing herself 100 until charles shows up and then she's like oh cousin anyway um so then there's obviously we've talked about a little bit but the relationship between mary and constance 
Mary selfishly wants Constance all to herself. I mean, that's evidenced by the poisoning first, then by her weird relationship with Uncle Julian. They're not close at all. She always tells herself she should be nicer to him. She did poison him, after all. He just didn't die. And at the end, she's so happy because it's finally just the two of them. And it's kind of fucked up when you think of, like, Constance was so close to having this out with Charles, whether it was fake or not. I mean, it, was, it wasn't it was fake. It was under a ruse because yeah. he did want the fortune and everything. But he, I believe that he really was going to marry her and take her away. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And at the end, Mary's like, look, we got everything we ever wanted. And Constance is just like, "Uh uh-huh. I'm so happy, Mary. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so depressing. And then that brings us to another weird dynamic, which is threaded throughout the entire story, the relationship between Mary and Constance and their dead family. And I didn't know fully what to make of this, but clearly they were not treated that well by their parents. Constance alludes to it. Mary obviously killed them. But they have a sort of reverence for their parents. They keep all their things packed away in perfect order. They keep the house pristine, especially Uh their mother's favorite room. They use all of her china and they have the memories of, oh, this is when, you know, mother got this. And just the way they talk about their parents is very much that they miss them and they respect them. But it's obviously more complicated than that. Yeah. And like they don't touch the mother's jewelry or anything. And it's it is it's like a weird dynamic. Mm-hmm. And it's like a very big deal when Constance mentions that maybe she should wear her mother's necklace. Mm-hmm. And that's when Mary is like, oh, hell no. We, something is wrong. Like, we gotta, we gotta figure out what's going on. So what did you make of Uncle Julian's rant that Mary died in the orphanage? I was almost like, I mean, to be honest, I was kind of confused by it. Because he lives in a house with her and Constance, but he's clearly so out of it and mm-hmm. his health is not not great and i don't know if it's because mary doesn't really seem to be around him that much it's only because she doesn't eat with him because she, she eats by her she doesn't like to eat in front of people and so it makes you wonder like realistically if he only sees constance and doesn't really see mary mm-hmm. Catherine at all yeah i saw a lot of people online saying that that could mean that Mary's possibly a ghost or like an aspect of Constance's personality, but way too many people interacted with her, yeah. especially when she would go to the village and stuff. I think it might be that, like you said, he wasn't fully there. And I think in some ways he had to believe that she was dead because maybe in some way he knew that she did the poisoning and how would he be okay with living her with her in the house? Yeah, that's a good point too. If he knew that she had tried to kill him, you Mm -hmm. know, Um, I also saw some fan theories that maybe Constance and Mary actually died during the fire. Interesting. Yeah. And it was just their ghosts living there. So anything else you want to talk about about the book before we switch to the movie adaptation? No, I don't think so. I think we covered everything. Yeah. All right. So the movie adaptation movie came out in 2018. It has pretty big names in it. Tessa Farmiga, Alexandra Daddario, Crispin Glover of the movie Willard, which no one has seen. Okay. And Sebastian Stan. When I saw Sebastian Stan, I was like shocked because Mm -hmm. I had just watched him in 
the Tommy Lee oh, TV series. Okay. He's got some range. He does. But it was it was a similar angry character. So this movie has an 88% on Rotten Tomatoes and a 72% audience score. What do you think about that? That the rating was so high? Yeah. Well, I thought it was actually a really well done movie. So Okay, so go on. Please tell me what you thought of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, the acting. I think that the casting was extremely spot on for all four characters. And I really liked that the movie kept a lot of the dialogue from the book. Mm-hmm. You know, like, because I think one of my one of my favorite scenes in the movie was when they're all at the table. And it's just like this constant overlap of like Uncle Julian yelling at Charles to like, you know, I can't and calling him like a bastard and, you know, ex- mm-hmm. apologizing mm-hmm. to Constance for using such foul language. And it's just and then Constance is just being so sweet and in the background and Charles looks like he's going to have a mental fucking breakdown because he's dealing with this crazy psychotic family. And mm-hmm. and then Mary starts talking about the, the deadly mushrooms. Mm-hmm. And it was like that yeah. whole that whole that was probably one of my favorite scenes of the entire movie because it was so I remember reading it and then seeing it on film. It was just perfection. Yeah, I agree. I think the casting was perfect. And it's they really did embody all of these very quirky characteristics yeah. like all of them i know like, constance uncle julian and mary they were they took on like the roles like because even like thais's adaptation of of mary cat i was like yeah that was mm-hmm. the way good. she would walk mm-hmm. the way that she would like she had little darty eyes yeah she never just... trusted anyone mm-hmm. and constance is like a pleasantville yep stepford wife with just these like wide eyes like can't believe what's going on Mm -hmm. and julian is just so funny like he's just he's like if you're not gonna shut your mouth you're gonna have to leave i i mean (laughs) i just can't i can't take this charles i have to ask you to shut the hell up Mm -hmm. like it's just so funny Mm -hmm. so i agree i love the casting i just thought that the movie was boring i can understand that if I hadn't read the book, I think I would have hated the movie because I don't think I would have had any idea no, what's going I, on. Actually, I I completely agree with that. If I didn't have any concept of what the movie actually was, I don't think I would have liked it either because it was weird. Mm-hmm. And I think you definitely had to either read the book or know what the book was about or at least know the plot points of the book going into it. Yeah. But it was interesting that they changed the the ending with Charles. Yeah, definitely. So that's the biggest difference in the movie is charles's death so in the book he makes one attempt after the fire to reach out but then he just kind of abandons them and in the movie throughout the whole movie he's a much more violent character in general so after the fire he breaks into the house and he's attacking constance and mary just busts his head with a snow globe and they full-on bury his body yeah so mary is just upping her death count yeah that was like the only that was the most shocking part for me like was that they they steered so far off course with that because that wasn't even i kind of liked it yeah because first of all he deserved it and second of all it obviously reads so much better for a movie to Uh have something dramatic Mm -hmm. happen like that what i also liked is that we got a lot more of Constance having her own personality. Yeah. Because in the book, you only see Constance through Mary's, Mary's viewpoint. POV. Yeah. Yeah. But in the movie, she gets, she still has that, you know, very naive, very 
subservient attitude and personality, but you're able to see how Charles is manipulating her and you're able to, you know what I mean? Like you just see more of her as a whole person Mm -hmm. as opposed to her just being kind of Mary's obsession. Yeah, I agree. The other part that I didn't really like in the movie towards the end after she starts the fire and Charles gets super violent with her and like chases her up the stairs and then all of a sudden Mary's calling him father and he's she's like father father stop hurting me stop hurting me like don't and so that was weird but I'm like okay but I guess showing you because there's no talk about the parents and how like abusive they were because clearly that's why and I think that's clearly why she killed her parents too because clearly the dad was abusing her and, and probably Constance too I missed that. Completely. Yeah, when, I the, the when they're running part. up the stairs, and then she's literally calling Charles' father, like, father, stop, father, and stop. They say that he looks mm-hmm. so much like father. And there's in the movie, Constance says, like, you know, that father didn't treat me well, or something yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. So that's a really good catch. I missed that. But that. That makes a lot of sense. Which, because that was the only other thing that was different. Because in the book, he doesn't chase her up the stairs at all. He smells the fire. Mm -hmm. And then he runs out. And he was like, this is why you need a phone, blah, blah, blah. And he runs into town to get help. Whereas Mm -hmm. in the movie, he has a violent outburst and then discovers the fire. And then is Mm -hmm. like, I'm going to go get help. The other big difference is that Mary Catherine is a lot more witchy in the movie. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, instead of just burying random shit or having her little talismans, she's got a whole spell book. (laughs) Yeah. She's like, what spell can I conjure so that Charles will leave our life? And I was like, okay. Which does make sense because... How else would you explain her weird burying yeah. things and superstitions and stuff? And in the book, but she keeps like... calling him a demon or a ghost. Yes. Yes. But I feel like it takes away from her quirkiness a little mm-hmm. bit. Like it gives a reason to her quirkiness when really in the book there wasn't a reason. You know yeah, what like, I mean? I, I actually almost kind of wish that they showed her like talking to the cat, like actually yeah. having like those weird conversations with the cat. <laughs> the cat is a main character in the book, barely in the movie. They I know. didn't even need him in the movie at all. I know. It was like unfortunate. <laughs> I liked how they started from the end. Like they started in the burnt out house. Oh, yes. And then they yeah. show her taking the piece of paper and she starts writing the opening paragraph. Yeah, it almost looked like she was going to take over the story writing for yes. Uncle Julian. Yeah, because it was the stack of papers that were julian's in the box yeah i think like the end of the book i feel was super super detailed after they go back into the house and i feel like it was kind of brushed over in the movie you know the fact that constance couldn't do anything it was mary catherine that did everything whereas like in the in the in the movie it kind of seemed that they both were but in the book it was mary catherine who made the border it was mary catherine who was bolting mm-hmm. the windows and and everything and she was very much again taking care of constance and i don't i didn't really get that at the end of the uh the movie i didn't get that vibe yeah and they also which i understand why they added this because it is a movie but during the angry mob scene where they get constance and mary catherine and they're like throwing them around in this circle and like taunting them and they throw her on the ground and she's trying to hide herself whereas in the book they just go and hide while everything is going on um no there's a part in the book where they keep cornering them when she they're trying to run away yes yes they do see them and i and uh constance is covering her face with the shawl yes. because she says like i had uncle julian's shawl but i don't remember them like 
getting her into a freaking mosh pit. No, 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 definitely not that. But they were definitely taunting them and and making it hard for them to escape into the forest. Yeah. They were trying to like keep them there. And then eventually they did get away. Yeah, which is also how they knew that they were still alive. Because mm-hmm. otherwise, they, they would think that they just burned up in the house. Exactly. But they know that they're still there because they're dropping off the food and, you know. And it was just in both the book and the movie that once the doctor comes out and says that Julian is dead, there's like an instant like feeling of like remorse and regret for what they the people did. And it's like, okay, but you hated them. So why is the death of Julian now causing you to flip and feel bad and bring food and everything when you wanted to run them out anyways? The fact that they immediately stopped rioting when they found out that he had died. So like, it's okay for you guys to act a fool when there's living people there. Yeah. But if someone died, all of a sudden you need to act like normal human beings. I know. It's It's like a complete shift from the beginning to the end of the novel with how the townspeople treat the family because in the beginning mm-hmm. they very much wish they would leave town and they ruin their they ruin what's left of their property and then they mm-hmm. feel remorse for it when in the beginning of the novel you feel like that you you wouldn't expect them to have that remorse mm-hmm. but they still have that piece of caring what other people think because they say when they would come to the door they would whisper at the door or they would take turns dropping things off Mm -hmm. and they basically allude to the fact that people didn't want to be seen yeah dropping off food no it was definitely like a secretive thing but it's just Mm -hmm. it's just ironic how they were so afraid of that family and hated them Mm -hmm. and now here they are kind of helping them in, Mm -hmm. in the end which was another difference in the movie because in the book the girls took all the food and they ate it yeah and then they would it was so cute that constance was like no i have to wash the dish wash what will they think of me I know. if i don't wash the dish uh-huh. but then in the book they just let i mean in the movie they just let all of the food pile up and people just keep bringing it i'm like if you bring a pie and they didn't take that pie don't bring another pie i know but it was a wasted pie i don't know also i just question how if there's a fire in the house, how things still work. Yeah, this is a very weird because the entire second floor was completely gone. And then all they had was the kitchen and the front hall. Mm-hmm. And they just. But everything like they were still able to like use the oven and cook. And I'm like, mm-hmm. OK. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure of the logistics. Um, Maybe they were ghosts. I don't know. <laughs> But they weren't because they were eating the pies. No, That's they were what I'm saying. No, they were definitely alive. It was, it's, it was just like a, which I mean, obviously there's no, it's not a real story. So it is what it is. You're allowed to be a yeah. little, it's fiction, clearly. But I was just like, if there was a fire, it should have destroyed at least the electricity or mm-hmm. whatever. But all right. <laughs> yeah. It's funny how their mansion turned into their tiny little bubble just big mm-hmm. enough for the two of them which yeah. is exactly what mary catherine always wanted yeah it was kind of like almost her wish came true yeah so happy ending for mary catherine poor constance didn't get to run away with her cousin but well that's that's bittersweet oh All my right, god i know get to the ratings <laughs> yes okay so our rating scale is spoonfuls of sugar oh that's very on brand how many spoonfuls of sugar are you giving this book? Uh, three spoonfuls of sugar. Three spoonfuls of sugar. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. I like, I didn't hate it, but I didn't love it. 
And I don't know if it's because I'm jaded by Agatha Christie and like how she writes thriller novels. And because like even like the style of how it was written, that didn't bother me. Like I was like, I'm used to reading things like that. But just some of it, I it was very descriptive in some parts to the point that I was like, Mm. I'm bored. I was bored a couple of times. Yeah. So, and I think I went into it. Which is crazy because it's a short book. I know. And I think I also went into this thinking it was going to be a horror novel. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't. It was definitely a gothic novel, but I wasn't, Mm -hmm. I was expecting more of like a horror feel. And it was kind of, and I think after watching, I mean, I, I know that the Haunting of Hill House book is different than the show, but seeing how they made the, the show, I kind of went into it expecting a more creepier vibe in this book. Mm-hmm. Even with the cover, like the new cover that they have, it's a creepy cover. So I'm yeah. like, oh, okay, like this is going to be like good. And I was like, no, this isn't really creepy at all. It's just this weird girl who's just has goofy tendencies and is obsessed with mm-hmm. her sister. I agree with that. I think if I'm rating it as a horror novel, it's super, super low. Mm-hmm. But I also am giving it three spoonfuls of sugar, possibly containing arsenic. I like the suspense that it's kind of built on. You never know what Mary's going to get up to with her murderous thoughts or what the townspeople are going to do when they see her. And there's a quote from the afterward in the version that I read by Jonathan Lethem, which kind of describes like the obscure horror that we get here. So he says, the relentless, undeniable core of Jackson's writing conveys a vast intimacy with everyday evil, with the pathological undertones of prosaic human configurations, a village, a family, a self. She disinterred the wickedness in normality, cataloging the ways conformity and repression tip into psychosis, persecution, and paranoia, into cruelty and its masochistic, injury-cherishing twin. So it's all about this, like, everyday normal that can just keep snowballing and festering and churning into that kind of horror i get that this is what old school horror is about as opposed to gore and a crazed serial killer running around with a knife and we as a society are so overexposed to everything that in order to be scared or entertained i feel like everything has to be over the top and this is much more subtle that being said i personally enjoy present day horror i love slashers i love gore i love all of it so this isn't my favorite kind of horror book but i definitely see how it could have been a masterpiece in its time yeah i and i i agree with that too and it's not even necessary that i was looking for like gore or like that i think i was expecting more spirit like that unsettling unsettling horror. like spirits like sp- a spiritual thing like i was mm-hmm. expecting like someone to go into a room and they feel like an unknowing like a dread and it wasn't any of that at all it was just it yeah. was more it was just quirky it was a quirky book through and through it was quirky yeah i agree with that i wouldn't categorize it as horror i definitely get the mystery part obviously yeah. and like you said oh, the yeah. gothic part i am happy that we read it because it's a classic and yeah. i never would have read it otherwise so exactly and it's a short read. It was very quick. I know. Like we said, the plot was very uh, <laughs> easy to discuss. Yeah, it easy was. to get through. So yeah, I definitely want to read The Haunting of Hill House. Um, I did what I gathered from like researching this is that it does have a lot more of what you're talking about, that kind of supernaturalish yeah. spirit stuff. But it also is a lot of like implied horror and a lot of like reading between the lines. Okay. So it's kind of more obscure. So I definitely want to read that. 
And I mean, her writing is very easy to read also. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think like her dialogue is great. Her, uh, yeah, her, which explains when you said earlier, she was considered witty. I can see that in her writing because the dialogue was some of my favorite parts. Like, honestly, mm-hmm. anytime that there was that there was talking going on from any four of the characters, I really liked it. Because I especially liked yeah. how like she was clearly so like Mary was so almost like a recluse and only felt comfortable talking to Constance. Like clearly Constance and Jonas were the only people she talked to. I don't think she ever talked to Uncle Julian. And so when Charles is like asking her stuff and she can't give answers, but she'll start spewing facts. Like it's Mm -hmm. like her nervous habit. And so it was just, Mm -hmm. it was the characters, the four characters were very interesting. The four characters. And then in a way, Mary's also emboldened by Constance because of the little comments that she makes to Mrs. Wright. And she stays out of their way and she's like, I have to go get some milk. I have to go to the kitchen. Mm -hmm. But whenever she is there, she'll make like a little quick-witted comment that Mm -hmm. you wouldn't expect from her. So I agree. I I definitely think that the author does put herself into her books. Yeah. And you can see that. Mm -hmm. Which is cool. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. Anything else you want to add? No. We covered it all. I think we did. All right. That's all we have for you today. If you like what you heard, please make sure to follow, subscribe, and rate and review the podcast on whatever platform you're listening on. If you have any book recommendations or questions for us, you can email us at fullybookedcalfpod at gmail.com. Also, be sure to follow us on TikTok and Instagram at fullybookedcalfpod to see our upcoming reads. Thanks for checking us out. And remember, if you need us, we're fully booked. Bye. Bye.